Raise your hand if you want to be like Jesus. Raise your hand if you want to go to heaven one day like Jesus. Raise your hand if you hope that Jesus helps you to rise from the grave. So if we want to be like Jesus, of course, we should be charitable, we should be loving, we should be kind, we should be generous, we should be prayerful, but we should also be buried in a tomb. It's very interesting. Right now, around many of your necks is a cross with an image of Jesus suffering in agony. Literally suffocating, dying by asphyxiation, blood pouring from his wounds. Many of us are very comfortable with the image of Jesus dying. If you don't have this image around your neck, undoubtedly there is an image of a crucified Savior in your bedroom or in your kitchen or in your living room. We as Catholics love Good Friday. From my earliest days as a Catholic, I remember as a young child going to St. William's Catholic Church in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Every single Sunday we went to the 7.30 a.m. Mass and we sat like in the third row back. Remember my dad was not Catholic at the time. And my mom had befriended these three old grannies who sat in front of us. They were all widows and they were straight from Germany and they had these deep German accents. And on Good Friday, we had a very large parish there were like four or five masses on the weekend. And when you go to Good Friday service, normally around three o'clock, if you have your seat that you always sit in every single Sunday, well, on Good Friday, all seats are for grabs because you're trying to take all these different congregations and shove them into, into one mass. But my mom would always look for these three old grannies and we would always sit by them. And one of the reasons why I loved Good Friday is I would love to watch these old, pious, devout women come back from kissing the feet of Jesus with tears running down their cheeks. We as Catholics are really good with Good Friday. We're also really good with Easter Sunday. We get dressed up, we rejoice, we get to say the A word. It's awesome. We're not very good with what happens between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's kind of this awkward time for us as Catholics. Like, are we supposed to be rejoicing or are we supposed to be not happy? I'm not sure what we're supposed to be doing right now because it's not yet Easter, but Jesus is dead. One of the reasons why we have seven statues of the entombed Savior here in Dearborn County is because I think it's a part of Jesus' life that we need to wrestle with. It's something that we don't like. We're often more comfortable with a dead Savior than we are with an entombed Savior. The reality is is that every single one of us will be laid to rest. Notice how Jesus, who is God himself, he could have risen from the cross. He could have died on the cross and said, Father, into your hands I put my spirit. And at that moment, he could have been glorified. He glorified himself on Mount Tabor in the transfiguration. But he chose to be buried to give meaning to our burials. In our gospel passage today, Jesus is told 
that Lazarus is sick. But what does he choose to do? He chooses to remain in Jerusalem. And in fact, twice, once by Martha and once by Mary, and then by the crowd a third time, they're saying, why didn't he do something? This guy could have done something. He made the blind speak, the mute, sorry, the mute speak, the blind see. He walks on water. He multiplies loaves and fishes. He turns water into water. Why didn't, this is his friend. And he wasn't in the tomb for three days. He was in the tomb for four days and there was a stench. I think the entombed Savior and the entombed Lazarus should give every single one of us hope. Because every single one of us has people right now that are lying in the grave. And you should find comfort that Jesus was there as well. That Lazarus was there. But that that is not our end. The burial of Christ, the 14th station of the cross, the burial of Lazarus is not the end. Because it turns out that Jesus doesn't do funerals. Jesus only does resurrections. I do funerals all the time. Apparently I'm not very much like Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't do funerals. Jesus only does resurrections. So how comfortable are you with the image? How comfortable are you with Christ laying in the tomb? What does it evoke within you? And how can we embrace that to truly want to be like Jesus, but to know that one day we will rise? In this gospel passage, which, by the way, you haven't heard proclaimed in a church in over six years. Our Sunday readings are on a three-year cycle, and three years ago, this church was sealed like a stone-cold tomb. Thanks be to God, we've risen from the dead, right? So six years ago, in 2017, was was the last time that you heard this gospel passage proclaimed in this church. This gospel passage, besides speaking about the entombment of Lazarus and his resurrection, also has within it the shortest Bible passage in all of sacred scripture. It's two words. Jesus wept. It's very profound. Jesus wept. Jesus is God. And Jesus cries. Now, scripture theologians and biblical scholars have poured out ink on this topic. Why did Jesus cry? There's two normal explanations. Number one, because he loved Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. He was his friend. Second, is that he was crying because he was so perturbed at the disbelief of those who surrounded the death of his friend that he was going to raise from the dead. If you go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, if you have been or if you're going this summer with Father Mayan, one of the churches that you go to is called Dominus Flavit, which means our Lord wept. It's from another place in the gospel 
where Jesus cries tears of sorrow and sadness because Jerusalem had not converted. And Jesus wept. There's another interpretation of why Jesus wept. And it's to give us permission to cry. After Mass today, there's going to be a baptism here at St. Teresa. Thanks be to God. We love baptisms. Why was Jesus baptized? Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He was baptized for two reasons. One, to set an example so that we would be baptized. And two, to sanctify the waters of the world so that they would be worthy and fit for baptism. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. He's not a sinner, number one. Number two, doesn't need to be made a member of the church. He is the body of Christ. Those are the two reasons that we're baptized, have our sins forgiven, to be made a member of the mystical body of Christ. He doesn't need to be baptized. He's baptized because he's a leader and he's showing us what we should do. So why did Jesus cry? He's God. He doesn't need to cry. He knows what's going to happen. But why does he cry? To give us permission to cry. And to sanctify crying. You want to be like Jesus? You should cry. When I was a little kid, particularly in my early teenage years, I thought crying was, of course, a sign of weakness and not very manly. I used to make fun of people that cried. My older sister is just kind of like a perpetual, like, gushing fountain. It doesn't matter. My sister cries at everything. Many of you know my parents. I, had, I have very, very, very good parents. My parents uh, were way ahead of their times. Many of you, because of electronic devices that your children have, whether it be a phone or a tablet or your television at home, you know what parental controls are, right? You can put blockers and things like this so that your children can only see certain things. Back in the 1980s, my, parent had, my parents had parental controls on our television. It wasn't technology. It was just the fear of death. <laughs> there were very few television shows which we were allowed to watch. and We were never allowed to watch television by ourselves. And one of the delightful shows that we were allowed to watch at the Meyer household, which was absolutely painful, was Little House on the Prairie. Now, some of you I just offended. But as a 11, 12, and 13-year-old boy, the last thing that I wanted to be watching was Little House on the Prairie. But when you're desperate to watch television and you just want to do something... I would watch Little House in the Prairie. And I do not believe there is an episode of Little House in the Prairie that my older sister did not cry while watching. One time I was grounded. Why was I grounded? 
Because as the theme song to Little House on the Prairie began, I ran around the house and collected every Kleenex box from the entire house, which I think was probably around 15, and brought them all to the living room and then threw them at my sister and said, just, just go for it. <laughs> my mom and dad did not think that was very funny, and I thus did not get to watch Little House on the Prairie that day. When was the last time you cried? And why did you cry? When was the last time you cried because of your sins and because you killed Jesus? When was the last time you cried after you went back and knelt down after you received our Lord's body and blood and Holy Communion and because of his love for you? When was the last time you cried at a funeral? When was the last time you cried at a wedding? When was the last time you cried at the birth of a child? When was the last time you cried? Because Jesus wept. And this God who was entombed, this God who is buried, which we one day will be, also teaches us how to live. And part of living is crying. And it's okay. Jesus was entombed. Jesus wept. And Jesus also had a broken heart. My brothers and sisters, I proclaim to you this Sunday that we have a God with a broken heart. We have a God with a broken heart that is the God of the brokenhearted. We have the, a God with a broken heart who is the God of the brokenhearted. If you look at our gospel passage today, you see God. You see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he has a broken heart. His heart is broken because his friend has died, but his heart is also broken because of the disbelief of so many of his followers who don't get it. So why is Jesus' heart broken? Because he loves. You see, my brothers and sisters, any time that you choose to love, you allow yourself to have a broken heart. Because as soon as you love, your heart will get broken. Every time that we choose to love someone or something, get ready for a broken heart. For those of you who have married, how many times has your spouse broken your heart? For those of you who have children, how many times have your children broken your heart? For those of you who love March Madness, <laughs> right? How many of the top seeds broke your heart? If you love, your heart will be broken. If you love, you allow your heart to be exposed and you allow someone else to break your heart. And we have a God with a broken heart. But he is also the God of the brokenhearted. He is your God. And he sees you in your brokenness. He sees your broken heart and he weeps. And he loves you. He loves you in your brokenness. And he just wants to be with you. 
So what's broken your heart? I did a funeral yesterday for a woman who was 102 years old. She died on her birthday. Her husband had died decades before. But oftentimes, we've seen this, right? Where a couple's been married for 50 or 60 years. And one of them dies. And what happens within a month? The other one dies. And what does everybody say? They died of a broken heart. Who's broken your heart? Was it the death of your spouse? The death of your child? The death of your parents? The death of a dream that you had for yourself or a dream that you had for your children? The diagnosis of cancer? The loss of a job? The beautiful thing, my brothers and sisters, is that we have a God with a broken heart, and he is the God of the brokenhearted. And he cries with you, and he weeps with you. And he knows that out of death, out of a sealed tomb, there is hope, and there is life. No matter how broken your heart is, there is always hope. So today, my brothers and sisters, as we focus on a tomb, as we see Jesus weep, as we turn to a God with a broken heart, may, he realize, may we realize that he is our God. He is the God of the brokenhearted. And in doing so, may we find hope and eternal life in the resurrection to come. Amen. speak about just a little something. Uh, sometimes we hear children crying at mass, and I just want to make a quick clarification about crying babies. It is the most beautiful thing in the whole entire world, and if our church is not crying, it's dying. And I just want to be very, very, very clear. If you have a problem with dying babies, you can leave this parish, because I don't want you here, and you're not pro-life. To be pro-life means that you love children from the moment of conception until natural death, and babies cry. And it is selfish for us to be upset that children are crying. It is an extreme form of narcissism, and it has nothing to do with being a practicing Christian. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Parents of young children should want to come to church, and they should never feel embarrassed. In fact, if you see a mother or a father with a crying child, your first response should not be, I wish that child would be quiet. Your first response should be to get up from your chair and to go to them and say, can I help you with your child? You look tired. Why don't I take that child for you for the rest of Mass? Because I love children, and I want you to have more of them. 
And I want you to know that our church supports you having children because that's what the church does. We claim to be pro-life and part of being pro-life means the fact that we love children, particularly in church. There are some churches that dismiss children, that don't allow children, priests that go off on rants and raves about how kids are noisy and loud at mass. I would like to just like draw everybody's attention. Like we live in, su- we, we, all we do is focus on the now. For literally for thousands of years, Christians came to church buildings where there was no PA system. Windows would have been open. You would have heard horses and buggies and blacksmiths who've refused to come to Mass that are out there making horseshoes on, on the Lord's Day. The whole congregation faced the same direction. The priest wasn't yelling at your face when he celebrated the Eucharistic prayer. Now I have a PA system. I can speak louder than any kid in this church. So, like, I just want to say, I just want to, like, be very, very clear that, like, we have to be a congregation that, well, like, churches across this country are dying. Who's not in the churches? It's not old people that aren't in the churches. Who's not in the churches? Young families with children. So as we proclaim to be pro-life, I just want to, like, encourage, like, what does that really mean? And, like, if you hear a kid crying, like, just rejoice in the Lord. Like, literally just praise the Lord. That kid is probably praying for you. When I hear kids praying, like, crying at Mass, the first thing I do is I pray to that child's guardian angel. Because it's real, right? So I just wanted to say all that because uh, you have pro-life signs you can pick up. And we, like, we're so blessed because we, we live in a county that's, like, plastered with choose life signs. But then, like, do we really believe that, Right? You know, we're like, I don't like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi because they, they hate babies. Well, do you love babies when they're crying? Or do you love them just when, like, when they're quiet? Like, do we love children? And like, I just want to be a parish that, that embraces that uh, in the fullest uh, extent.